Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we are back from our mid-season break. Have you missed us? I'll take that deafening silence as a no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This week we take a look at the brutal murder of 13-year-old Lucy McHugh at the hands of a man who had been welcomed into the family home by her mother and stepfather. It's a tragic case and one which will see us delve into a world of child sex abuse. So if this is a sensitive subject area for you, then perhaps this is an episode for you to skip over. Additionally, I will be using the C word once later on in the episode, and I have thought long and hard about that, but it is intrinsic to the narrative of this case. So again, if that's not your thing, best give it a miss this week. I just want to take a moment to signpost some support that's available as well. So if you are a child living in the UK and you are suffering from sexual abuse, or you think you might be suffering from sexual abuse, then you can call Childline on 0800 1111 and they have trained counsellors available 24 hours a day and there is also a lot of support on their website which you can find at childline.org. For children living outside of the UK we would encourage you to go online and to look for any support groups and organisations that are near to you. So before we dive headfirst into this disturbing episode, we would like to thank our new Patreon supporters, the people who really do make this show happen. So thank you, Vicky Peacock, Abby Lehman, Janice Fershow, Marie Harris, Gavin Marcus and Trish Patterson. Thank you all so much for your support and it really means so much to us. We have had a few people kind of asking us recently, what is Patreon and sort of how they can support us? So basically, Patreon's a platform that you can use to support us financially if you want to, um, which just ensures, Mark always says this, it ensures that the show is around for a long time, <laughs> not just a good time. That's my catchphrase. <laughs> it's your catchphrase, isn't it? Yeah. So if you do want to support us on Patreon, we have three different tiers of support. So the tiers start at just $3 a month and it is an American website. So the pledges are in US dollars. Um, and then you get different benefits depending on the level of support that you give. There's no minimum commitment. Some people choose to pledge support for a month. So it's like a donation and then others support on an ongoing basis. We have bonus episodes available. Everybody gets some exclusive Seeing Red merchandise that we send out as a thank you once you sign up to support us. And if you sign up to the top um, tier, which is $10, I think. Is that right, Mark? That's correct. Mm. Um, you get a signed script mm. of one of our episodes. Isn't that exciting? So if, if you, you would like it. to come and join the 70 or so people who currently support us in this way, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast. And it just takes a couple of minutes to sign up. Okay, so on to today's case. When Stacy White and her boyfriend Richard Elms welcomed 23-year-old Stephen Nicholson into their home in May 2017, they could never have foreseen the tragic consequences that their act of kindness would ultimately have. Just 14 months later, in July 2018, their 13-year-old daughter Lucy would die at the hands of Stephen. Stephen was the best friend of Lucy's stepfather, Richard, and when he faced being made homeless in May 2017, Richard did what any good friend would do and invited Stephen to live with him, Stacy and Lucy in the family home in Southampton. Stacy put a word in at the care home where she worked and got Stephen a job there, and it was an opportunity for him to have a fresh start and turn his life around. Up until this point, life had been hard for Stephen. He'd spent a large part of his childhood in care 
And at the age of 14, he was sentenced to two years in a young offenders institute for his part in a particularly violent incident which took place in the children's home he was living in. Arriving back at the home late one night and high on amphetamines, Stephen took some of the staff there hostage, threatening them with knives and even holding one to the throat of a female staff member. He rounded up the staff along with a number of children as if he were a shepherd herding his flock and then locked them in a room before stealing a thousand pounds from a safe and driving off in a staff member's car. That must have been terrifying. I I really think so, yeah, and he did get two years for that. So Mm. during his time in the Young Offenders Institute for this crime, Stephen, along with two other inmates, barricaded themselves in the servery before causing thousands of pounds worth of damage and attacking staff once again with knives. In adulthood, Stephen struggled to find a purpose, perhaps a victim of the care system. Obviously, we'll go on to talk about Stephen's ultimate crime, his cold-blooded murder of Lucy, but at this point I do have to say I have a tiny amount of compassion towards him. Now, I wasn't able to find out a lot about his childhood or why he ended up in the care system, and I am in no way saying that everyone who spends time in care goes on to commit crime, but he obviously had a difficult childhood, which was not of his own making. Oh, do you know what? It's so difficult because you don't want to excuse somebody for what they do, but there there is always going to be some, you know, if they've had a difficult childhood, there's going to be something perhaps that could prompt them to go the way they go. It's so yeah, tough I, not I to excuse so. though, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I really, I'm not making excuses for him at all. I'm just, I just think that, you know, he was in care as a child. That is never a child's fault if they end no. up in the care system. Absolutely. And when I looked at some statistics around this, I found that two thirds of children who end up in the care system have suffered some form of physical or sexual abuse in childhood. And a massive proportion of them go on to commit crime later in life. Although, as I said, I'm not saying that's a narrative for everyone who has spent time in the care system. No, of course not. But two thirds of children who end up in the care system have suffered some sort of abuse. That is a huge amount of those children. Yeah, and I think so much more needs to be done to reform the care system because from what I've read, it's just not fit for purpose. And when we look at some of those statistics, you know, that is really worrying to see um, that we we aren't helping these children when they need it most. Anyway, we digress. So in early adulthood, Stephen became obsessed with three things, grooming underage girls, tattoos and reptiles. I was going to make a joke of like, oh, Friday night for Mark. And I'm not even going to do that because... You can't make a joke about grooming underage people. No, I can't. I can't even... You somehow get away with it when you insult me. When when I talk about you binging on heroin and crack... (sighs) But I, I'm not. I just don't even know how we're going to have this light-hearted. This sounds like I already I don't think like a horrendous this, case. This is a really brutal case. Mm. It really is, and it just gets worse and worse. Um, so Stephen owned several snakes, and whilst he was not a tattoo artist, he would provide a tattooing service to underage girls and basically to anybody who was looking for a cut price, slightly shit tattoo. Stephen was covered in tattoos himself. A slight man he made up for his lack of stature with his impressive array of artwork, including a tattoo of the word freedom across his forehead, slightly ironic given what would happen to him after he killed Lucy. Stephen used these interests to groom girls. Indeed, in 2012, at the age of 18, Stephen met a 14-year-old girl who was interested in getting a tattoo. 
He agreed to do the tattoo even though the girl was underage and she didn't have consent from her parents. And the pair began to chat online with the conversation progressively becoming more sexual. Eventually, Stephen asked the girl if she would have sex with him and she agreed. He took her to a wooded area at Southampton Outdoor Sports Centre where the pair had sex. This happened five years before Stephen met 13-year-old Lucy McHugh, the girl he would go on to sexually abuse before murdering her in the same wooded area where he had sex with the 14-year-old girl. And I find it difficult to believe that Stephen didn't abuse any more underage girls in the intervening five years. Um, no, like I can't imagine, unless he was literally in prison for those five years. Which I, he wasn't. No, I can't imagine that he didn't do anything in that time. And the case of this 14-year-old girl only came to light during Stephen's murder trial. So wow. um, the girl had seen numerous press reports surrounding the case and bravely came forward with her mm. story, later testifying in Stephen's murder trial. Wow, that is so brave. And I really do believe that there were probably many like her, but perhaps we'll never know. What we do know is that Stephen was a sexual predator and a paedophile when he moved into the family home of his best friend in 2017. So let's fast forward to this time now. We know Stephen had been down on his luck, jobless and about to be made homeless. His best friend Richard had kindly stepped in, offering a roof over his head. And his girlfriend, Stacy, Lucy's mother, had even found him a job at the care home where she worked. So, as I said, this really should have been a fresh start that Stephen so desperately needed. However, instead of seizing this opportunity, he abused his friend's generosity by abusing their daughter. Lucy was just 12 when Stephen moved into the family home. Stephen was 23, a grown man with an impressive collection of reptiles, including a nine-foot boa constrictor, a tarantula and two chameleons. And it's easy to see how he captured the attention of an impressionable young pre-teenage girl. Yeah, especially at that age, you're starting to want to rebel a bit. And she I had think, no chance, know, did she? Like She didn't. Her head would have been turned. And it appears that Lucy did develop a crush on Stephen shortly after he moved into the family home. But instead of kindly rebuffing her, keeping his distance or even moving out, Stephen encouraged Lucy and exploited her interest in him, which is just disgusting. Yeah, she was available. She was in the house. She was in the bedroom opposite his. And he took full advantage of that. Lucy was described by her teachers as bright, bubbly, intelligent and eager to learn. And her grandmother said the family called her brains because she was so quick. Over the course of 14 months in the lead up to her death, Lucy became a shadow of her former self as Stephen chipped away at her self-confidence in his campaign of abuse. Notes written by Lucy, which were found after her death, tell the full story of the relationship. The judge in Stephen's trial, Mrs Justice May DBE, described the notes as pathetically heartfelt and stomach-turningly explicit. In the notes, Lucy details how she lost her virginity to Stephen in May 2017, the very month he moved into the house, the repeated sex between them which followed, and the troubling emotions which Lucy experienced throughout. In one note which shows a touchingly intelligent understanding on the one hand, and a fateful inexperience and naivety on the other, Lucy tells Stephen that, quote, whatever this is, it has to end but it clearly didn't. 
And the judge said of the notes in her sentencing remarks that, quote, the mix of mature insight and sad confusion in this and other notes which Lucy wrote serves powerfully to demonstrate why there is a need for an age of consent and why the age of consent is set at 16. So from the notes Lucy wrote, we know that she was being sexually abused by Stephen from the moment he set foot in the family home. He groomed her and used her to satisfy his sexual depravities. In Lucy's immature eyes, it was a relationship though. They were boyfriend and girlfriend as far as she was concerned. And she made no secret of this to her friends at school. Hearing reports of the relationship from pupils, Lucy's teachers were naturally concerned. Although Lucy denied any sexual relationship to her teachers, they immediately did the right thing and referred their concerns to the local multi-agency safeguarding hub. Well, that's first, good. I'm glad that the yeah, teachers actually paid some attention. Which it, we don't often see that. And that was first in 2017 and then again when Lucy moved to school the following year in 2018. But each time, no action was taken by the social services, which is appalling. Oh, what? Oh, God. And again, we see that time and again. In notes written to her cousin in the weeks before her death, Lucy confided that the relationship, as she saw it, had become a terrible burden. She said that Stephen had been violent towards her and that she was scared of him. The atmosphere at home had become very uncomfortable by this point. Lucy and Stephen were often arguing, and Lucy's mother and stepfather were aware of this, however they had no suspicions of abuse. Outside of the house, Stephen would speak about Lucy using unkind, abusive and derogatory terms. At times, his rage would boil over and he would scream in Lucy's face, calling her a cunt. And again, I, I'm, I'm not really making apologies for using that word. Um, it was used in the sentencing remarks by the judge. And I just think it's so important to, to use it in this context. How horrific it is to hear you saying that and you're using it in the right context, how horrific that would have been for that 12-year-old to have it screamed in her face by an adult. I think you're right to use it because it shocks me to hear you say it. So how horrendous that is that he said that to a 12-year-old. And it it really upset me. And there's another point we'll get to um, in a short while in the story that really upset me. But um, but yeah, I wanted to say it because it's so powerful and you can almost put yourself in Lucy's shoes and experience some of those emotions that she would have felt at that mm. time. And, and this was somebody that in her eyes, she was in a relationship with that she loved and it was abuse anyway, but it was also this awful kind of verbal abuse that she was having to endure. I I really don't want to at all blame her mum and stepdad at all, and I am not trying to blame them, but I am shocked that this is going on. Their daughter has changed and is behaving really differently and has become really withdrawn, and she's arguing with a man that's living in the house. And, I mean, you might you might cover this. They may have taken her to one side and tried to talk to her, but it doesn't sound like at any point they've tried to look into this. Am I right to assume that? I, yeah, I I do. Um, I did struggle with it a little bit. I must be honest. Mm. There's a really touching interview that Lucy's mum, Stacy, gave uh, to the Sun Online, which I'm going to um, take some quotes from in a moment. But um, I, I did question it myself. I did think, how did they not know? In terms of the change in behaviour, don't forget Lucy is preteen, oh, yeah, um, is teenager. You're going to see that. That's mm-hmm. quite normal. And she was probably quite careful to hide. 
um, that this relationship was going on. And I, I don't want to sound snobby here, but this wasn't a scummy kind of household where Lucy was kind of left to her own devices and the parents were out getting drunk and drugged up all the time. This is quite a normal working class environment where mum and dad, stepdad were going to work. And it was quite a busy house, I think, in that regard. So mm. maybe they just weren't fully present in Lucy's childhood at that time but I really don't want to blame them for what happened I, I really yeah. wanted to put that in and, and to make that clear however mm-hmm. I think you know you, you've said exactly what I was thinking at, at this exact point myself yeah. I feel in, like in our story. listeners might be thinking the same thing so I'm glad you've kind of talked about that and said actually yeah there's there's not really any blame on the parents and that's a really good point she's a preteen, so you are a bit withdrawn or secretive or whatever at that point and I think I think the first they almost knew of it was when Richard Lucy's stepdad walked in on Lucy and Stephen hugging and Stephen was trying to push her away and he'd kind of become aware at that point that they'd been arguing and he did then ask Stephen to leave which I'll come on to um, in a bit more detail in a moment so maybe that was genuinely the first that they'd heard of it I don't know Mm. So though Lucy was obviously still scared of Stephen, she does actually appear to have stood up for herself, telling him on the Sunday before she died that it was, quote, his fault and that she had, quote, a hold over him. There was that incident where Richard, Lucy's stepdad, had walked in on her and Stephen hugging and Stephen pushing her away. Um, so Richard asked uh, Stephen to leave and Stephen then went to stay with friends and then with his mother who lived around the corner. He left all of his belongings and his reptiles at Richard and Stacey's house, however. So I'm not really clear whether that was just a temporary measure uh, Mm. just to get him out of the house for a little while or whether he was going to go back and collect all of that and move out completely. On the day Stephen moved out, Lucy told Richard that she had something she needed to tell him and her mother later that night. But Stacy didn't return home until Lucy had gone to sleep, so the moment had passed. And I think it is safe to say that had Lucy spoken with her mother and stepfather that evening, she may actually be alive now. Mm. I think it would have come out that she was being abused by mm-hmm. Stephen and he would have most likely then been arrested and basically thrown in jail and the abuse would have stopped. So, you know, it's really tragic, isn't it? Just that one, uh, you know, the mum not coming home mm-hmm. till later, that moment passing, you know, it could have saved her life. Not anybody's fault at all. No, but but it that, just shows that thing of just how life can just be so cruel. Yeah. A couple of days after moving out, Stephen left work early, claiming to be suffering from sickness and diarrhoea. Working in a care home that looked after the elderly, Stephen knew he would not be allowed back to work until 48 hours after the last symptoms had presented themselves. But Stephen wasn't ill. He was buying himself the time he needed to carry out his deadly plan. That afternoon, he cycled up to the flat of an elderly man whom he knew in Curtin Court, right beside Southampton Outdoor Sports Centre. Stephen remained at the flat for three hours that afternoon while he planned how he would remove Lucy from his life. As the judge said in her sentencing remarks, quote, She had ceased to be of interest to him as a compliant object for his easy sexual gratification and had instead become a serious obstacle to his continuing comfortable life at the family home where he had a base for his tattooing and a place for his collection of dangerous reptiles. 
I think that's really key, isn't it? She was just an object to him. Yeah, a thing, not a human being. And I think as far as Stephen was now concerned, Lucy did pose a real threat to him. Mm -hmm. One word from her and uh, basically he would be outed as a paedophile. Whilst at Curtin Court that afternoon, Stephen ordered a pair of new trainers for delivery the next morning. It is also likely that he put together a murder outfit made up of old clothes that he could dispose of after killing Lucy. And you know what? Buying new shoes, that's what they say, isn't it? The one thing that most people People don't get rid of. They forget. Yeah. Yeah. And there can be microscopic traces of DNA or blood. So, yeah, yeah, he really, it was premeditated completely. Mm -hmm. One of the most premeditated murders I think we've looked at, to be fair. Later that day, Stephen and Lucy communicated extensively over Facebook Messenger. However, Stephen was again careful to cover his tracks. We'll never know what the pair discussed as Stephen deleted the messages as soon as he had read them and as soon as he had sent them. At 8.15am the next morning, Stephen cycled from his mother's house to the flat at Curtin Street, arriving at 8.30am. At around 9am, he visited a nearby Tesco Express, wearing clothes other than those in which he would wear to murder Lucy later that day. And it's highly likely that Stephen did this to ensure that he was captured on CCTV in a different set of clothes Mm. kind of thing. Or, you know, like if he'd worn his own clothes and then murdered her, they would probably be like, where are your clothes? Yeah, exactly. We've seen you on CCTV wearing those. He can say, look, here they are, they're clean. Yeah. Yeah. So again, very premeditated. Mm -hmm. So around this time, shortly before 9am, very soon after she'd spoken with Stephen over Facebook Messenger, Lucy set off from the family home on the half hour walk to Southampton Outdoor Sports Centre. And she was captured on CCTV on her journey to the sports centre and was described in court as walking with purpose and looking at her watch as if careful not to be late for her rendezvous with Stephen. And the last piece of CCTV footage captures Lucy walking past the same Tesco Express that Stephen had visited just an hour or so earlier. A woman walking her dog in the sports centre grounds at around 10am recalled seeing a girl matching Lucy's description heading towards the top cricket pitch, which I think when I've looked at that sports centre, that was a cricket pitch that was quite out the way. And it was here, deep in the foliage, that Stephen stabbed Lucy to death. The pathologist noted Lucy had some stab wounds on her arms and wrists, which could have been defensive ones, as if she was desperately trying to protect herself, which again is just tragic. There was one unusual incised wound right across her wrist, as if the murderer had tried to make it look like Lucy cut herself. Of the 27 cuts and stab wounds, the majority was centred on Lucy's face and neck. Those that killed her were a collection of four or five repeated stab wounds, all in one place to the right side of her neck. These wounds cut her carotid artery, leading to sudden high-pressure blood loss, unconsciousness, and very soon after that, her death. This is horrendous. This is so frenzied. It It really is absolutely frenzied, and particularly with the majority of the stab wounds being... Okay, I'm going to carry on. The wi- uh, let's just carry on the window cleaners here, guys. So uh, you might hear some uh, <laughs> some watery sounds. I'm just going to power through. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the fact that the majority of those cuts and stab wounds being to her face and neck, that's mm-hmm. so personal, isn't it? That's it really a is. face-to-face attack, and, and that's just violent in the extreme. 
Um, I wonder as well, so the one across her wrist, had he tried to kind of think that she wouldn't fight back, trying I to did, do it in some way, yeah. and then she's fought back and he's just lost his mind? It's interesting, isn't it? I mm. did wonder about that. And it took me back to the David Kelly episode that we covered mm-hmm. in season one, because the same description was given then. And that was a what I think was a murder that was made to look as if it were a suicide. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, perhaps that was something that we were seeing here. I, I'm not sure. I thought it was interesting. So maybe that's what he started with. And then it just went to shit from there. And he, you know, just attacked her in this absolute frenzy. Because um, you could almost, if if she had just died from a one wound across her wrist, even though it still would have been suspicious, um, he could have come out and said, well, I turned her down load. She really liked me. She's committed suicide and it would be, be slightly, de- slightly believable. Yeah, I could see that there's some logic to it. Also, when they talked about a sudden high pressure oh, blood loss. Horrendous. Y- you know, we know from descriptions of other episodes, from court documents we've read, etc. We know what that looks like, and we know that blood in that scenario can actually shoot up to six feet in the air. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a really horrific, brutal, violent attack. He would have most likely been covered in blood. Mm-hmm. I hope you guys are enjoying the window cleaner. Um, anyway, so after he'd killed her, Stephen returned to the flat on Curtin Street before cycling home. And this flat, it's never really made clear, but it's, you know, it belongs to an elderly person that he knows. And I wondered if that was an elderly person that was actually now in the residential care home that he worked at. Mm. So maybe it was a, you know, a house that he'd used to meet Lucy. I I don't know um, previously. Um, But again, I thought that was quite interesting. So on his way home, Stephen detoured from his usual route to dump the outfit in which he'd murdered Lucy deep in the bushes beside a stream in an area known locally as Tanner's Brook. The next morning, Stephen pretended to comfort Stacy, Lucy's mum, as she grew increasingly concerned for her missing daughter, and he texted her, I hope they find her safe. Police are good at their job and they will find her soon. Keep your chin up and stay positive. Oh. Which is just, how cold-blooded can mm-hmm. you get? But the police would not find Lucy safe. Just hours later, her body was discovered and in a chilling interview with The Sun Online, the one that I mentioned a few minutes ago, Stacy describes the moment she was informed of her daughter's death. And this is harrowing. So she said, I felt the blood turn to ice inside my veins. The room began to spin and I had the sudden urge to vomit. I dashed from the room feeling like my whole world was about to implode. I couldn't breathe. And I think Stacy paints such a vivid picture mm-hmm. here. In my opinion, like nothing we've heard before, that sense of panic that this is now her reality, um, that she is now a statistic, her daughter's been murdered. You know, her words just bring it to life in such a harrowing way. Mm-hmm. And Stacy actually goes on to describe um, her visit to the morgue to formally identify the body of her daughter. She says, I couldn't accept that it was her. My legs were dead weight, refusing to move any closer to where my baby girl lay lifeless. It was my Lucy, but so silent and still. It wasn't like her at all. I held my breath, willing her to jump up laughing, telling me she was absolutely fine. But my precious girl was gone and my world came tumbling down. And I don't know why, it just makes me so emotional Mm. reading that. And when I wrote it, I felt so emotional. And I really do now. we've, We've read and covered some horrific stuff on this show, but 
I don't know what it is. It's just... I don't think you ever get desensitised to it, though. No, it, I don't think so. It is such a harrowing sort of thing to listen to and to read, and and that's for us, let alone what she was going yeah. through. And I think that's it. You know, again, she paints this truly harrowing, vivid picture as if you can actually put yourself in her shoes and maybe experience a tiny amount of the grief that she suffered. Of course, it doesn't compare, but mm. um, I've never actually felt such empathy um, for someone and you throughout know what? the, the history of the show. It's making me now feel bad for sort of earlier questioning about the parents and I why think they not really why... paying attention. I think that's it because obviously, you know, I know the story inside mm-hmm. out now. I, I really have more context around mm-hmm. it. So, you know, yeah, initially you would certainly be thinking, you know, what's going on here? But actually they were a good family. This mm-hmm. wasn't a broken home. Um, this was just a normal teenage girl who's actually really bright and intelligent, a normal working family that were probably just about managing. Mm-hmm. You know, the mum was having to work probably horrific shifts at that care home. Um, it was just a tough life. Yeah. But, you know, the loss that she feels, at, you know, what happened, it's just so palpable. Mm. Later that day, after visiting the morgue, Stephen called Lucy's stepfather, Richard, in an attempt to console him over the phone. But something Stephen said shocked Richard. He talked about where Lucy's body had been found, a fact that had not yet been released to the media. Oh, my God. Can you imagine being Stephen, uh, sorry, being Richard and hearing that and then your, your like stomach would be in your throat, wouldn't it? Just like, hang on a second. What does this mean? Something's not right. Yeah. What does he, what did he just say? So Stephen, to be fair, became a suspect in the investigation and he was actually arrested on suspicion of her murder the day after the body had been found. And his arrest sparked one of the biggest evidence searches in UK criminal history with a trawl of thousands of hours of CCTV footage in the local area. I think it was something ridiculous, like 11,000 hours of footage was trawled through over the coming weeks. Wow. During questioning, Stephen admitted to detectives that he had corresponded with Lucy on the morning of her murder via Facebook Messenger. When police attempted to gain access to his Facebook account, it became apparent that he'd changed the password in the days prior to his arrest. He refused to hand over his new password and officers were now at a loss. They had no hard evidence linking him to Lucy's murder at this point and they could actually only hold him for 96 hours before either charging him or releasing him. And this brings us actually to a really interesting part of the police investigation. Rather than charge him with Lucy's murder, a lack of evidence would have made this impossible, they turned to a piece of legislation often exploited when dealing with terrorists. Oh, wow. Section 53 of the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, or RIPA, as it's commonly known, is normally used in cases involving national security. However, the surveillance law can also be used in all serious crimes where there is a need. So Stephen was bailed in relation to Lucy's murder, but charged under Ripper for failing to hand over his Facebook password. Oh my God, that's amazing. Isn't that crazy? And the case was heard, so that actually went to trial, that as a separate mm-hmm. case was heard at Southampton Crown Court and Stephen pleaded guilty before being sentenced to 14 months in prison just for not handing his Facebook wow. password over. That's amazing. But also then the police have got time then as well. So... 
Absolutely. That was crucial. So it did buy the police time and it bought them time to continue with their investigations and time to build up a solid case against Stephen, who was now behind bars and therefore not able to tamper with any evidence. So, you know, in my eyes, this was a genius move. Yeah, really using it to their advantage there. Yeah. Stephen had been careful when he murdered Lucy, as we'd said uh, numerous times. There was no physical evidence or DNA linking him to the murder scene, and police had not been able to locate the murder weapon either. The murder weapon was believed to have been a kitchen knife with a five-centimetre blade, so actually quite a small knife that he probably could have disposed of quite easily. Mm. So police turned to a cloud data analyst for help at this point. Their job was to study the location of Stephen's phone on the morning of the murder. And their investigation showed Stephen had been in the vicinity where Lucy's body had been discovered and that he'd also deviated from the most direct route back to his house, stopping off at Tanner's Brook on his way home. So police immediately launched a fingertip search of the area and found a bag of partially burnt clothing, including a blood-soaked hoodie, which contained Stephen and Lucy's DNA. Oh, wow. Had Stephen not been jailed under the Ripper law, he would have been free to go back to Tanner's Brook to dispose of the evidence properly, which I really think he would have done. Mm -hmm. And that would have been the only solid evidence that police had, and without it, it's unlikely that Stephen would have ever been charged with Lucy's murder. Oh so charging him under Ripper, what, what really was an ingenious move mm. on uh, the police's part. At his trial, which took place a year later and lasted six weeks, Stephen was found guilty of Lucy's murder, as well as three counts of raping her at the age of 12 and one count of sexual activity with a child. The latter charge being in relation to the 14-year-old that he'd had sex with in the grounds Mm -hmm. of Southampton Sports Centre in 2012. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and told he would serve a minimum of 33 years behind bars. So that brings us to the end of today's case. And it's a truly harrowing case of the abuse and murder of an innocent child named Lucy a girl who had the world at her feet but whose life was snuffed out in an instant owing to one man's depraved predilection for sex with underage girls. And it is, uh, we've said harrowing a few times, but it really is that, that is, it is horrendous. And it's, it's one of the worst we've covered, yeah. isn't it? If not the worst, I don't know. Some just hit you more than others, don't they? That's yeah. just the way it works. But yeah, it's just, you know, that, that sort of description of, um, Stacy going to visit Lucy in the morgue. When I wrote that, every time I kind of read that, it just every single time, it just made me so upset. Mm. I think quite often after an episode, we'll have a bit of banter or we'll talk about something. But I just, with this one, I just think thank you for bringing Lucy's story and bringing Lucy almost to life with with your descriptions of her and mm. um, making sure that everyone's aware of her case and perhaps we should just sign off with saying to people get in touch with us in all the usual ways um facebook instagram and twitter let us know what you thought did this case affect you as much as it's affected mark thanks for joining us guys bye
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.